Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 and this is episode 1159 of the Survival Podcast, which means since it's Friday, it's time for your calls. It's not really Friday, 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 though, for me, folks. This is Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. It just doesn't have it, does it, you know? But I recorded this show yesterday for you guys so that you would not be without a show on Friday. And boy, is it a good one. I've got a panel answer on setting up redundancies with Wells from Stephen Harris that could be a show in of itself for you today. I've got some great thoughts from expert council member Ben Falk on dealing with thistles, and I have some ideas of my own on that. And I've got about 12 other questions from you guys. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, it's really simple to uh, to get on. All you do, pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK. That's the think line because we encourage you to think around here. Again, 866-65-THINK. If you don't have little letters on the numbers on your phone, that's 866-658-4465. 866-658-4465. Leave me your message. You get about two, three minutes to do that, the way to get on the air. If you really want to be on the air, call from a quiet place. Make sure you have good cell phone signal. Because if you're sounding like this, Jack, there's no one on the other end to say, hey, dude, I can't hear you, so you won't know. Uh, It's a quiet area, good signal if you're on a cell phone. Uh, Make your question or your point at the very beginning. My question is, how do I, what do you think about, etc., or my point is, blah, blah, blah. Done. Details follow. If you do that, your odds of getting on the air go up exponentially. I'd say 30 to 40% of calls right now of the call volume do get on the air. So we don't get anywhere near the number of calls. We do get emails. So if you have something you'd like on the air, it's a much better way to get your call on the air. Don't worry about being anonymous. You don't have to tell us who you are if you don't want to. And if you're worried about the government, they already know anyway. So don't, don't, don't worry about it. It's time to be like the fire ant with that stuff, folks. Like, uh, I think it was Insidious said on our blog or Inbox, one of the two guys said on our blog, man, be like the fire ant. Build your house wherever you want with want and disregard. If somebody messes with it, jack them up. That's, that's where we got to get with this, uh, this, this fear of being known about thing. Uh, cause it's, uh, it's time to go on the offensive. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, you know, Sawtooth Tactical has all the things you could ever be looking for. When it comes to living that tactical lifestyle, veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's where that Sawtooth part comes from. Cool stuff. The awesome, the manly, the really neat titanium spork. I mean, this is a piece of titanium you could probably beat somebody to death with. It's just awesome, and it's multifunctional, too. Uh, when I gave away one at the, uh, the Self-Reliance Expo, Ron, Ron Douglas kept trying to steal it. Uh, that's how cool those things are. Magpul Magazines. Uh, they have all the gear you could be looking for. Check them out today, Sawtooth Tactical at sawtac.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. There's not a lot more you can ask a company to do than uh, to make their name what they do and then have them do it time and time again. That's what ready-made does. Ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website, ship to your door, lightning fast and great customer service and great pricing to go along with it. And everything from solar, wind, 12-volt, food storage, tactical, practical, gardening, guns, you name it, they got it. Check them out. Ready-made, uh, 
www.thepowerofresources.com. Next, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you join that, you can help support the work we do at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like paramedics, uh, firefighters, and EMTs. All of you guys uh, qualify for what's called a service discount. To obtain that discount before you join, let me say it one more time, before you join, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, put service discount, and in the body of the email, within two to three sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, because you did this job in the past, who you are and what you did, I'll respond with a discount code to thank you for your service to our country, our nation, at home, and or abroad. All right, so... With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I do want to remind you guys that right now as you're listening to this, I am probably walking into, if, you, if you're the guy that downloads it as soon as it comes out anyway, I'm walking into the, uh, the, the, the Self-Reliance Festival in Des Moines, Iowa right now. I'll be there all day, and then tomorrow I will be there um, for all day as well. Well, today I'll be there for about half the day by the time I get in and get over there and all, get my rental car and things like that. Saturday, tomorrow, I will be there all day, and I will be presenting between 1 and 3 p.m. on six core permaculture techniques. It's a really great presentation that's actually gotten better uh, since the first time I put it together. So come check that out. I'll be there to answer your questions. It'll be cool. We'll have a good time. And uh, I can't wait to meet as many of you guys there as possible. Uh, it does look like I'm going to have a little meet and greet tonight. Uh, I'll have probably had a, an announcement out on the uh, blog uh, before that be, before uh, you're even hearing it on the show. But it's Jimmy's Big Ton, Big Big Ton, Jimmy's Big Ten Restaurant and Bar. It's at 1238 8th Street, West Des Moines, Iowa. And it's only about four and a half blocks from the Valair, which is where the, the Valair Conference Center, where the expo is. So it's probably for those that just want to really maybe work off a, a little bit of the pub food, it, you could probably walk it. Anyway, I'll have out more information about that, uh, about the time and all in a blog post that should have actually come out yesterday since I get some answers back from Robert, who's the event manager for Scott for the festival. So since I get times on when he locked in the reservations on the patio, I will let you guys know on the blog yesterday, so I'm speaking to you from the past. Anyway, with that uh, wrapped up, and we are going to have a, some kind of a, of a meet and greet, too, on Saturday evening. I don't think it'll be as limited on attendance as I thought. I'll, I'll check, and just stay, stay tuned to the blog, or come see me at the expo and ask me about it, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, fill you in on what we're doing for Saturday evening. I want to see as many of you guys as I possibly can. Alright, with that wrapped up, I am uh, ready to go ahead and take your first call today. And with that, here we go. Caller, what do you got? Great show, Jack. It's like uh, missing an old friend when uh, I don't listen to your podcast for the day. have a quick question for you. I have a portable generator. I know you do, too. You've used it for uh, storms and, and things like that, which would what, what it would be used for. Um, they talk about grounding it. How do you ground a portable generator? It sort of runs counter to uh, it being portable, in my thoughts. Do you have to ground it all the time you run it? Um, do you ground it to your water pipe? What's the best way? What, what do you guys think? Maybe uh, Steve Harris would have an answer for me. Thank you. Bye. Keep in mind, when you're thinking about stuff like this, we now live in the world of litigation and ass covering, and there, there's different ways that a generator gets used. And 
if you are using a generator in the fashion where it sits on the ground and then it gets plugged into a bypass switch or something like that, where you're actually running the generator's power into the house, it's very important that that transfer switch completely isolate uh, the uh, the system, and that has its own independent grounding requirements. And there's a code for an installed generator that way that does that. You're really talking more about a portable generator, right? You're talking about, you know, like my 6500 watt or the, you know, the cool little Honda 2K that Steve recommends is a great small generator. It's very fuel efficient, quiet. Uh, it's an inverter generator. It's just a great generator. Uh, it doesn't have anywhere near the power that my Troy built does, but it's a good generator. And depending on where you live and what you're trying to power, it's you know a, a lot of power, really. With these types of generators, it is generally recommended that they be grounded. It is absolutely not necessary for them to function that they be grounded, but it's recommended because the manufacturer's covering their ass. Here's why you may want to do it, and it may simply just be a ground from the frame of the generator to a rod you shove in the ground whenever you fire it up. Um, if there is a fault in the generator, there's some sort of a fault, what can happen is the generator literally could begin to dump energy into its own frame, okay? And if you walked up to and touch it and it hasn't been grounded, it may very well be you may very well become the ground and it may dump that voltage into your body and fry your ass. That's why it's not likely um, to be honest with you, I use my generator without worrying about that all the time. Most people I know, and this is, now again, this is you're using the generator, you're plugging extension cords into it, and you're running them to various places in your home or on your property. That's, generally speaking, the way this works. Now, some realities here. The generator's on a, in a metal frame. That metal frame is sitting on dirt. It's probably going to go to ground that way anyway. It's sitting on pavement? It probably isn't. Okay, I'm not saying that sitting your generator on in in the dirt is a is a a way to uh, to to properly ground it. I'm just saying there's a fundamental reality at play there. The, there is some you know concern if you don't do it, but this is how I personally look at it, and I'm not telling you to take my advice on this. I'm just telling you how I personally view this. The odds of there being an internal fault in the generator, it dumping energy into the generator's frame, and the generator continuing to operate and not blowing something are very, very low anyway. Okay, so I, I, I don't really overly concern myself with this, but it, it's, it's, it's a general safety practice. Now, you were saying, well, it kind of defeats the purpose of it being portable. Not really, because you can you can drive a, a rod into the ground, and you don't have to have you know national electric code of it being eight feet long or some crap like that for it to uh, for it to do what it's supposed to do. All code is built to overkill. Um, if Steve wasn't kind of weighed down with uh, a pretty intensive uh, listener panel question, he had to get back to me a day early this week. I would have thrown this one over to Steve uh, for his thoughts on it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to email him right now. And if he emails me back during the uh, during the show, 
Um, I will, uh, I'll give you his additional thoughts at some point along the way here. But that's kind of the deal. Now, here's what you can do to make your life easy. If you're going to have a portable generator at your house, it still probably stands to reason that when you fire it up to power things in your home, that you're going to set it in pretty much the same place every time. So what you can do is just go ahead and drive a ground rod in that area. And when you pull the generator over there to fire it up, you know, run a ground line from there to the ground. Um, it's pretty simple. And again, that's the concern. That's, that's the reason for it. It's, it, it's theoretically possible the enter, the, the, the end of the generator could be begin to actually charge its own frame. Uh, apologize for the dog barking there. The uh, garbage man is, uh, is picking up the weekly garbage and, uh, Max is wanting to eat him. Anyway, um, in theory, the, the generator could, uh, dump energy into the frame, and if there's no ground, then that energy could remain charged up there, basically, and you, when you walk up to perform some function, could basically complete the circuit. Again, I don't think this is likely. I've actually never read of a case where this has happened, um, but it is possible, and that's why the concern is there. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, I have a question about thistles. I've got a infestation in my pasture of both red top and Canadian thistles. I cut all I can, but they're spreading like wildfire, and I'm just looking for a natural solution uh, versus just spraying some hardcore chemicals on them. So I uh, would appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. Now, it's been a while since we've heard from Ben Falk of Whole Systems Designs, who's on the expert council. Um, so I kicked this one over to him for some of his thoughts. I'm going to let you hear what he has to say about it, and then I'm going to come back and give you some of my additional thoughts on it. Hi, Jack. Just want to provide some thoughts about the uh, question regarding thistles. I would first uh, put a question back to the caller asking them if they graze intensively and in a rotational way, because usually when you have high stock densities, a lot of animals, and you're moving them through an area quickly, which is really the the only best way to graze for, for both animal and soil health, um, you reduce the populations of any one plant and you promote diversity. Um, Secondly, I would ask if you've had a soil test um, before and what it said. Usually an overabundance of a specific species is an indicator of, of some kind of imbalance in the system. Um, I would also ask if you seed, uh, providing you know input of, of a diversity of seed, especially leguminous seed, can be very helpful to kind of balance out populations. We've hand cut thistles at um, even moderate scales with great success. We've never seen it, an overabundance of, of thistle per se. When we do see them in pastures around here in, in Vermont, um, it's usually a result of poor grazing. I've never seen thistles uh, take hold in, in a, in a well-managed field. But I would look into your soil, spread some seed and look into your grazing strategy if you're getting uh, any undesirable plant in large population. I would certainly never spray a chemical pesticide because that simplifies the ecosystem as a whole and makes it less productive in the long term. Certainly a lot more toxic uh, for both you know populations in that ecosystem, including your own animals and, and any food you might get out of it, and uh, just doesn't contribute to productivity in the long term. So it's been Ben Falk here with some thoughts about your th question on thistles. I completely agree with that assessment and that, that concept. I, I would like to add a few more things that I can probably tell you 
about your soil and the soil, the status of your soil, uh, if you have large abundance of thistle. Uh, your soil is likely heavily compacted. Thistle, uh, is like many docks, dandelions, or comfries, or anything like that, a, 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 a daikon radish style thing, uh, a very deep, long, penetrating taproot. And so, Grazing will help correct this because you will loosen soil, but that's part of why you have so much thistle most likely is that you have fairly compacted soil, and it's probably one of the few plants in your area that can deal with the compacted soil and survive the harsher conditions of summer. So that's part of why it's kind of running rampant on you because you're sitting in a place where it's, it's, it's one of the things that can survive the harsher summers. The next thing that you probably have going on is your soil, like mine, probably tends toward the alkaline. You can have acidic soil or neutral soil and have thistle, but it's a plant that, that generally does well in alkaline conditions where others do not. So how do we move the soil toward the, 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 the acidic? Well, we can do it with amendments and things like that, and there's organic ways to do that, but if we start grazing, as, as uh, Ben suggested, then we're going to start building bacteria in the soil. And if we start building bacteria in the soil and we start getting bacterial breakdown of the rock and sand and mineral that's in the soil through a bacterial methodology, we're going to immediately start to swing toward acidic anyway. And that'll also up the, the content of things like earthworms and other soil organisms, which will begin their own manuring of the soil, which will move it even further toward it. Now, this isn't going to, you know, that activity is not going to take soil that's in at 7.6 and push it down to 6.6 in a year. But it will start to swing. It'll swing a point or two relatively quickly. Um, additionally, as we start to build up that biological life with grazing practices, uh, then we're going to get into a situation where the soil becomes tilled by the activity of the grazers themselves and we get some looser areas where other things can show up. That's why the high rotational grazing will bring in more diversity because it will change the tilth and the compaction of the soil. Some areas will be more compacted, some areas will be less. We'll also start to get textures in the soil where organic matter can accumulate. So that's why grazing does all these great things. Now, As far as will anything eat it, you bet. Sheep, goats, cows will all eat thistle. Thistle is actually the root. Thistle, prickly lettuce, all these thistles, right? Canadian thistle, cardoon, all this stuff is the root of all lettuce crops. Uh, the lettuce you eat today, it's so sweet and yummy and free of all little birds, and it goes back to thistle. That's where it comes from. Uh, I saw that in a video that Ben sent me in conjunction with us working on this one together. So uh, I didn't know that, but that's that's the case. Now, if you can eat thistles. Uh, I know that seems crazy, but you can. There's a lot of ways to do it, but the, probably the best way is when they're young to blanch the entire plant, uh, which means like wrap cardboard around it and then tie it up and bind it up and let it grow, and it actually becomes a lot sweeter and softer that way. So that's One thing you do, but if you, let's say you're like, dude, I, I really can't graze uh, uh, cattle on, on my property. I have the space or whatever. Um, let me tell you what tears up thistle and prickly lettuce and things like that and just devastates it. Like, it's the first thing they eat. Geese. Uh, my geese, if I cut, and I'll, maybe I'll do a little video of this when I get back from Iowa for you guys. If I go out 
and I take my little sicket and I cut a couple stalks of prickly lettuce out of the yard and I throw it to them, they drop whatever they're doing to hammer that. They like it better than amaranth. They like it better than lamb's quarter. They like it better than Bermuda grass. I mean, they flat out love prickly lettuce. So grazing, I think, is your best answer. If you're not going to graze, you're going to have to look into uh, maybe doing some tilling, initially tilling to do some establishment and mowing uh, in, in, in very selected time frames to change the soil texture, and then you're going to have, and I agree with Ben again, you got to get some other inputs in here. you got to bring some other seed varieties into this so you can start increasing the diversity. But for that diversity increase to work, you're going to have to change the way the soil is for it to happen. Um, you're either going to let it go and it's going to start to success into forest, okay? It's going to build, the thistle will give way to woodier, hardier, deeper rooted perennials that will eventually start to grow trees and if you want to let's just let it go unmanaged into trees that can work but otherwise you're going to have to change the soil profile uh, in some manner because if you just start buying a whole bunch of great cover crop stuff and just walking around and spreading it out most of it will never germinate because it can't get into that compacted soil and it has to then compete in all that shade from the thistles so um, you're going to have to do something to change the soil profile and begin a, a, a path of progress so that there are places where plants with shallower roots that need different soil conditions can begin to increase diversity for you. Anyway, great stuff from Ben. Great question from the caller. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, I got a quick question about vaccines. Uh, in one of the most recent episodes with uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, you mentioned that your wife... Um, being a nurse has found out uh, through being retired that uh, some vaccines were completely unnecessary and some dangerous. Uh, with uh, two children under two, I just wanted to ask you what vaccines do you think are completely unnecessary and what can be, which ones can be avoided and uh, which ones pose a real danger to children uh, through some recent training I've had, I've realized that uh, formaldehyde is actually in a lot of vaccines and is very bad, down to uh, less than one part per million is considered toxic. So, you know, with that knowledge, I kind of spurred on my question here about vaccines. So, uh, thanks for all you do, Jack. Love, looking forward to your answer. Thanks. Let me start off with the fact that I do not feel that there should be no vaccines, that vaccines in themselves are inherently evil. I, I do believe that much good has come from the work of vaccines, and there's a place and a time for them. My biggest concern with vaccinations in our children is the sheer number that they're given now. Not just the number of varieties, but how many sessions of vaccinations these children are given when they're in a situation where their likelihood of exposure to any of these illnesses is very, very low. So, for instance, measles. When's the last time you saw somebody with measles? Now, I know we have to because that's because of... But how many measles freaking vaccines? How many MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccinations does a child really require by the age of two? This is what's gone crazy. It's the number of, of, of repetitive boosters on top. And some doctor's going to email me and give me some bullshit reason about why that's necessary. And let me explain to you, Doc, before you do, the bullshit reason that you've been taught is the bullshit that was written by the people that pushed these things. 
Right, so that's the first thing. The second thing I think we need to talk about and be honest with with vaccinations is what is the consequences of the illness? In other words, if we if the, if your kid actually got this illness, what what would happen? Would they die? Would they become extremely sick? Could they be uh, uh, crippled from the illness, or would they just itch for a couple of days like chickenpox? Okay. Well, let's be honest about this. What is, what is the consequences of chickenpox? Do people die from chicken? No, no more than people die from the cold anyway. So there are certain vaccines that is it really worth the risk of the vaccine if the consequence of the illness is minor and benign? And you'd say, well, you know, Jack, if you get chickenpox, then you can get shingles when you're an adult. Well, they have a vaccination for that. So I'd rather, if I'm worried about shingles, get a shingles vaccination at 60 than have my kid vaccinated for chicken pox at the age of like six months, two, whatever it is that they do these things now. It, again, it's the sheer number. It's the things that are in there. And there is so much research about the links between autisms and vaccination. There, and it, it's not crazy foil hat. It's real, solid, evidential peer-reviewed freaking research that the drug companies are burying. I'm not going to tell you don't get your kid vaccinated. I'm just going to say, you know, let's look at the vaccination schedule. Let's look at all the vaccinations, and let's decide what these children really need and when they need them and what frequency they really need them at. I mean, as I understand it from the research I've done, the average child by the age of two, when you take all the vaccinations in the frequency, receives 36 doses of vaccination if that recommendation is followed. And then generally they're given another round of uh, vaccinations, I think at age, like around around four or five, okay, before you go into school. And schools require that. When I was a kid, your, your, your baby's got a vaccination. And we're done. And then you got a vaccination when you were five. It was it was a, it was two rounds like that. It wasn't bring them back in three weeks and let's give them another booster shot of this crap. And nobody was dying. Nobody was falling over. There wasn't a chicken pox vaccine. I think the whole thing has just gone and run amok. If we can vaccinate something, we're gonna do it. That's the that's the society we live in today. Anything that could affect you at all that we can develop a vaccine for, we're gonna shove it in these little children. With, with and completely deny evidential research showing links between inflammation problems, autoimmune diseases, autism, ADHD. Um, what's the other, autism spectrum disorders like um, uh, Asperger's, which which I believe I grew up dealing with, and we're going to just ignore. We're just going to ignore. All that research just say, ah, oh, well, the rewards outweigh the risk, and we're not even going to evaluate what the risk is. We're not even going to evaluate the risk. What is the risk? What is the risk if we say, okay, we're going to do most of these vaccinations, but we're going to give our children one round, not freaking six rounds. And, and we're, okay, we're going to look at chickenpox and say, what is the risk of a child with chickenpox? Well, they'll give it to another child. If you don't want your kid to get chickenpox, you get them vaccinated. Why do I have to? Well, it could infect the elderly. Keep your older people that you don't want to get chicken box away from my kid. See, here's the problem. We've gotten to a point where the state is telling you what to do with your children and ignoring reality. I don't have an easy answer on this one. You, you know what I would love? I would love to get an open-minded MD 
who has really researched this, like the guy I can think of that I would love to have for this, um, is Dr. Mercola. And Dr. Mercola is a guy, you see him a lot of times, he's above my pay grade, as we say in the Army. I'm not going to get him on the show. But I'd like to get somebody on the show that's actually an MD, that's done the level of research that you know, you'd know you see in a Dr. Mercola, and actually help answer this question better. And I don't want a doctor coming on that just says, they're all fine, shut up and take your, your shots, because I don't buy that. And I'm not looking for somebody to come on and go, never get any vaccine ever under any circumstances. I, I think at that point, you've gone too far to the other extreme. I'd like somebody in that middle ground that can really dig deeply into this. Maybe I'll see if Dr. Bones wants to take that one on. I'm not sure that that's really his area of specialization, though, because uh, he was uh, an osteopath, hence the, the Bones analogy there. So uh, I don't know if that's really something he's dug very, very deeply into, but I'll, I'll see if they're interested in it. Or if you're out there and you're a doc and you'd like to, to have this discussion on the air, I'd love to have you. But uh, I'm on Dr. McCullough's website right now. Here's a list of vaccination-induced neurological disorders. Encephalitis, ataxia, retardation, uh, meningitis, paralysis, uh, paralysis polio, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, lupus, hyperactivity, ADD, and LD, uh, demyelinization diseases. Uh, demyelinization sucks, by the way. Um, an example of a demyelination disease uh, would be MS. This is The myelin is the basically the insulator that is on the outside of the nerve, and when you demyelinate it, it's like stripping the insulation off of a copper wire and you get short circuits in your, your nervous system. It causes extreme neural pain. All right, just so, you know, maybe we actually look at some of these and understand what they mean. Autoimmune diseases, epilepsy, convulsions and seizures, blindness, deafness, SIDS, epilepsy, mental confusion, and brain tumors. These are all proven things that come from vaccinations. Now, not everyone gets a vaccination gets this stuff, but they're all things. And do you know where you find this stuff in the warning inserts for the vaccines? I think that every parent should do this. This is a minimum that every parent should do. When a doctor says it's time for your kids vaccines, I'd like to see the the warning insert for every vaccine you're going to give my child. I'd like to know the frequency of the vaccinations and I'd like to know if that's really necessary. And if the doctor just like holds his breath on that, get a new doctor. Get a new doctor. Get a freaking new doctor. A patient asking to see the warning insert for a medication that's going into their child's body should immediately receive the insert. The second it's asked for, yes, ma'am, here you go. And you should read it. You should read the entire thing and you should ask about it. And you should at least make an informed decision. What my wife has said isn't I couldn't ever be a nurse again or I couldn't ever give a vaccination again. She said I couldn't ever give a, a mother, uh, I could never have a mother come in and just give her child a bunch of shots every rotation without saying, hey, maybe you should look at this first. Maybe you should make a more informed decision first. Maybe you should get over to Mercola.com first and, 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 and decide which of these you want and what frequency you want and make an informed decision. And maybe they don't need this many. And you know what? You can't do that as a nurse in a pediatric clinic. You'll get fired. So it's not that she would be unwilling to give somebody a vaccination. She would want all patients getting a serious medication to be fully informed about the needs, the risks of proceeding, and the risks of not proceeding. And it's sad that we live in a society where people that even question that have been mocked and called conspiracy theorists and told to shut up and sit down and take their shot. So I don't have an easy answer for you. I know this, 
I've had one flu vaccination in 20 years. And I've had the flu one time, 20 years. Guess which year I got the flu? The year I got the flu vaccination. Now you can write in and tell me it's just coincidence. I'm going to tell you it might be. It might have just been a clave that wasn't part of the vaccination for that year. My point is, I've managed to not get the flu for 19 out of 20 years, and the one year I had the very special flu vaccine to protect me, it did work. That's at a minimum. God knows what damage it did to me. Okay, I had some developmental issues growing up. Again, Asperger's, I think, is the most likely. Am I saying it's because I was vaccinated with all the crap like every other kid was? I don't know. It might have just been me. It might have just been my personality. It might have been just a challenge that I needed to overcome. And long term, it might be good. It might be why I am who I am today. I don't know. I'm just saying there's a causal relationship that's been proven over and over again. And the damn warning level labels inside the vaccine inserts tell you this. So please, don't just take my word for this. Start doing some research. Get over to McCullough.com. Read everything he's got on vaccinations. And make informed decisions. That's all I'm saying with vaccinations. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Val Ski calling from the anti-constitution state of Connecticut, getting ready to move the hell out of here and move south, most likely to Florida. I've uh, used the form, and that's been a tremendous help. My question for you is I have some 19-karat gold jewelry, uh, specifically a rope chain and some pendants, with that the price of gold has dropped a little bit, but my question to you is, would it be worth me to take that gold jewelry and sell it and take that money and buy silver? Silver coins, silver squares, you know, half ounce, one ounce increments. Would that make sense to you? Thanks, and I can't express how much you've actually helped me straightening out my finances and my life, and actually I have a goal now, and I love it, and this has been six months. I've read a lot of your, uh, uh, listened to a lot of your old episodes, and you've tremendous help. I can't express how much I appreciate it. Thank you, Jack, and keep up the good work. Yes, immediately sell 100% of your gold and then go to tspmint.com and buy uh, as much silver as you can. And please buy my most expensive proof. Uh, no, I'm, no, that's marketing. And it's not even really marketing. It's a joke. Uh, some idiot will probably cut that out and claim that I said that for real. Anyway, on your question, um, it comes down to this. Do you want to hold gold or silver? It has nothing to do with the fact you already have the gold. Okay. It, it is, it's a completely, and totally meaningless in this equation. If you, what you should do is get a price on your gold. Okay? Just get a price. You get, call around, find a couple of places you can take it, go in and, and get a price on it. Consider not necessarily selling to a We Buy Gold establishment. Go to a, maybe a pawn shop that sells jewelry and get them to price it as just basically buying junk gold for you and, and to price it, you know, basically say, what's your best offer on this? And maybe get pricing from two or three places because since it's jewelry, if it's nice jewelry that somebody might want to own, it may not ever get smelted down and made into gold again, you know, just raw gold again. It may be actually have a little bit of a premium as a jewelry piece. So it's probably worth just whatever it is for, from its intrinsic gold value, but you might find a pawn shop that'll pay you a bit of a premium on it if they just look at it and go, well, we can sell that. We, that'll sell in our store. So, uh, get a, get a price, find out what this is worth. 
And then ask yourself, let's say it's worth $1,500. If I had $1,500 right now, would I want to hold gold with it or would I want to hold silver with it? And whatever that answer is, is what you should do. And it has nothing to do with whether or not I think gold or silver is a better investment. It has to do with you being a fully informed adult human being who knows what you want to do with your money. And if the answer is, I know I would buy silver with it, make the conversion. Because there's no difference. Now, I don't think necessarily holding gold jewelry is the best idea, though. Because anytime you're holding gold jewelry, you're holding not necessarily pure gold. You're holding a, a carat, so to speak, you know, uh, maybe 14 carat or something. There's almost so much gold content in it. And while jewelry right now will carry a little bit of a premium if it's nice jewelry, when the shit hits the fan, it won't. Okay? Gold is going to be valued because it's gold. So if you wanted to hold gold, I would even consider exchanging this gold jewelry for gold bullion, maybe small fractional gold, like 10th ounce or, or, or so gold, so you have multiple pieces so it's more fractional and easier to exchange. But either way is fine, and holding the jewelry is fine. Here's the thing. You've held on to it this long. You didn't buy it as a gold investment. You bought it as jewelry. You probably bought it years ago. It's not like you bought it when gold was at $1,700 and now gold's at $1,400 and you're taking a big loss on it. There's no need to actually do anything other than what do you want. Now, my personal opinion right now, if you said, Jack, I've got $1,500, $2,500 and I'm trying to decide between gold and silver, I would say buy silver. And it's the same reason I've been giving for five years. I think when the lid comes off of the economy, silver has more upside potential. There's too big of a delta between gold and silver today. Gold is either overpriced or silver's underpriced. That's the only way you explain the delta that breaks thousands of years of history about the, rela the relationship of the ratios. And you look at the ratios the stuff comes out of the ground with. And you look at the fact that unlike gold, silver is used. For every ounce of silver that comes out of the ground, probably half of it ends up used in some way where it's either gone or non-recoverable. With, with all of that being the case, and with it being the case that there's more silver used in non-recoverable ways today than there was in the past when silver was money, and the ratios of what they come out of the ground are still very, very close to each other, and then the ratio of value is just not what it historically has been. It's, it's way out of whack and way too far to the favor of gold. I just see that when, when the real value of these metals is expressed through the failing of the underpinnings of the economy, silver will carry more value in the rebuilding phase of the economy. But that is an estimation. That is a guess. And I don't think it can hurt you to hold either one right now. I really don't. Um, again, I don't look at silver and gold as big trading items. I look at 5% to 10% of your wealth. And if you are buying and selling gold to make money, you should have sold your gold with a trailing stop a long time ago, two or three months ago. If you're holding it for a, a wealth assurance program, then you don't worry about those ups and downs so much. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Rob, uh, Southern California. I got a question. I have a, uh, a well on my property uh, that I plan on using just for irrigation. Um, so I'm looking for the expert counsel, Steve Harris, uh, to possibly let me know the possibilities of getting a low draw pump and solar. I know in the past, uh, basically saying no way is, you know, for pumping water out in the normal 
the normal size pump with solar is not practical. But is there like a low draw pump option? Um, and this would be just to fill up a, you know, 2,500, 3,500 gallon tank that I have. I have a great place for it on my property. It's about 65 feet above the well. So it would have to be able to pump it up that high. Not sure if it's possible with solar, but uh, hopefully uh, Mr. Harris can help me out. All right, man. Love the show. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. If the call sounded a little uh, technically off, it's because I had to boost the hell out of the volume on it. Uh, folks, um, please do me a favor. This call got on because it's such an interesting call, and it, 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 it sparked such a great answer from Steve. But a lot of times this is a kind of call where it's hard for me to use. I mean, this call was very, very quiet. When you're making your call, speak directly into the phone. Keep your mouth close to the phone. Don't turn your head away from the phone while you're talking. Um, I can do a lot on my end with stuff, but uh, I can only do so much. This came through clear, just quiet, and that's why I had to boost the hell out of it. And it might have sounded a little funny after it got leveled back out with the rest of the audio, but uh, that's just a little public service announcement. Now let's hear what Mr. Harris has to say about this. And uh, Guys, I want to tell you, This guy worked on this for like three days. He made phone calls. He did calculations. He got, I mean, Steve, you know, sometimes Steve comes off being kind of a butthead to people. And I've heard people say that. I know I do too. But, uh, man, there isn't a person out there that, uh, that puts the work into, uh, to getting an answer for somebody that Steve does. Uh, so Mr. Harris, please take it away. Rob in San Diego. Southern California. For those listening, I had to call Rob and get some more details so I could give you this great answer I'm going to give you. That's how I know all these extra facts and numbers that you're going to hear about. Rob has a 180-foot well. Uh, the pump is at, 100, is at 180 feet. His water static level is at 160 feet. Plus, he wants to pump his water up an additional 65 feet up a hill to a 3,000-gallon plastic cistern. So this is 245 feet of max head, 225 feet of static head. You want to put the water up into a 3,000-gallon plastic cistern that you are going to use for drip irrigation for your permaculture. And the well has been tested for bacteria, so you're not going to use it for drinking water. You have city water for drinking water, and you want the well water just for irrigation. Okay, good plan. You just want some solar panels on a solar DC well pump to give you about a gallon of water per minute throughout the day as the sun is shining in sunny, sunny California. This sounds like a pretty good idea. So I called and talked to some solar water pump people, got some details, and I have some very interesting options for all of you guys, and I think you're going to like this little story of power I am going to tell. So children, gather around the fire and listen. An SCST-128 solar well pump is about 600 bucks. Plus, you need another $275 for the controller, And you're going to need some solar panels, some half-inch poly pipe, and everything all together. This is for a maximum rating of 231 feet. Incidentally, it's hard to go below 200 feet with a solar well pump. Most of them are for 150, some are for 200, and you're at 225 to 245, so I had to find this special one. And it'll go to 231, which gives you a little bit margin of error. It is 200, it is, sorry, it is $2,200 for this complete kit. 
that includes everything, the polytubing, the solar panels, the pump, the controller, the wire, the safety rope, the well seal, the panel connections. Uh, it, it includes the solar rack, everything you need except for the, a two-inch pipe that you cement into the ground to mount, mount solar rack to. And it'll fit down a four-inch well case. And if any of you guys are interested in this, I got this from Rod at sunpumps.com, S-U-N-P-U-M-P-S.com. Very friendly guy, full of details, knows this stuff very well. So at one gallon per minute with a solar well at your depth of 225 feet of head, you get six mean solar hours a day. This is going to be 360 gallons of water per day. Now, six mean solar hours a day means that your solar panels that are sitting there facing the sun in the noonday sun are putting out the equivalent of full power, like they were, you know, on all the time for six hours a day because you got the sun rising in the east. You got to get your full sun through the day. Then you get your sun setting. You might have, you know, 10, 12 hours of light, but by time, you, it goes up, full power, and goes down. This is what equals what we call six mean solar hours a day. It means as if you had six straight 100 perfect, 100% perfect hours of sunshine onto the panel. So you told me that one gallon per minute with you was just fine, and these are the numbers I'm using. Now, you are also going to have to pull your existing pump. So I talked to some local well people in your area. It's about $2.50 a foot to go up and to go down. So pull the old pump out and put the new one in, about 500 bucks. So you're looking at 2200 bucks for the solar well kit and $500 to pull the pump. And that's going to be just about 2700 bucks. Okay, 2700 bucks for a solar kit, a solar well kit. Let's look at another option. We have a working pump in there right now. Your existing pump works great. Let's look at just powering your existing pump with solar power. Now, your existing well is 25 gallons per minute through a 6-inch casing. It's And you told me it was certified and rated at that and tested at that when you bought the property. So... You don't need to run 25 gallons per minute for 15 minutes. It's the same 350 gallons of water you'd gotten off solar. So your pump is a two horsepower max, uh, two horsepower pump. Its max amperage is 13.2 amps and this is at 240 volts. So like I said, we need to run your existing 25 gallon per minute pump for about 15 minutes a day at any time of the day. You can have a timer bring it on at midnight. You can have a timer bring it on at noon, any time that you want. So you have the same 350 gallons a day of water going into your cistern as if you had one gallon per minute for six mean solar hours a day from the solar pump setup. Now, how are we going to power this behemoth of a pump with solar? Well, you're going to want a 240-volt inverter. And I found an AIMS, an AIMS, 240-volt, 5,000-watt inverter on Amazon. It's 500 bucks. Good ratings, everything. I'd trust it. I'd buy it. You got some big cables going to it, but okay, it's 12 volts to 240 volts. It'll work for you. Now, that's 500 bucks. Now we need solar panels. They are $100, $180 each, and you're going to need two of them. So this is 100 watts of solar. But since you have just over half the sun in December as you do in July, 
This is according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory Solar Radiation Data Manual, also called the Red Book, and I do sell it at ush2.com. Plus, you can find it for free on the Internet as well. Just go Google the what I just said. And so you're going to want more solar panels for cloudy days. So you have power to run the well every day. And so you're going to need four panels. So that's four times $180 at $720 in solar panels. I have these awesome 100-watt solar panels for 180 bucks that include shipping from Amazon, and I'm putting them for you for those who are interested on solar1234.com. Uh, they'll be nice and bold so you can see them and click on them and go check them out. They're five-star rated. The feedback is awesome. The people say, these people should teach other people how to package things. It comes so well packaged. Uh, these are the panels I am going to use for anything solar I'm doing from now on. And that is when Jack forces me to do something solar because you know it's not the first thing that I advocate. I have other things I advocate uh, that you do first. You're going to need a 30-amp charge controller. This is 99 bucks. This is the same one I used on my double TSP show with Jack on Battery Banks. That's at battery1234.com if you want to listen to it. In fact, complete instructions on how to do all of this are on my, on my two TSP battery shows at battery1234.com, and it's all free. If you desire, I also have a four-and-a-half-hour DVD video on the subject. You can purchase it if you want, but I'll give you everything you need for free in the TSP shows. So if you want to know how to do this, go listen to that stuff. Now, you're also going to need four golf cart batteries. They are $105 each plus $15 for the core charge at Sam's Club. Uh, so that's $120 times four. It's 480 bucks. Now, you're going to want to double this because of cloudy days, because running that pump for 15 minutes is going to pull down 66 ampere hours of stored power. Four batteries are going to be about 440 ampere hours. So if you ran this four times, which would be 15 minutes per day for four days, and because you didn't have any sun, this would bring your batteries down to 50%. And if you listen to the battery show that I've just described, you would know that you start to do damage to your batteries when you start going below 50% depth of discharge. So you're going to want to double this to eight golf cart batteries, and that's 960 bucks in batteries. So now you have 880 ampere hours of batteries, and these are GC2 batteries at Sam's Club. These are current prices as of uh, June of 2013. And I talk about these in detail in the battery show I mentioned. Also, Trojan T105s would be the equivalent, and they would also work. You're going to need at least $80 in wire cables and connectors because you're going to be pulling about 240 amperes from the batteries to the inverter when this thing is running. Woohoo! That's a lot of current. So uh, while you got this great battery bank at 240 volts, you might as well spend an extra 180 bucks for a 2,500-watt Whistler inverter. It's a 120-volt inverter. Hey, it's your backup power system now. Maybe you want to power some stuff in the garden. It's not just a well pump system. It's a battery backup system for your entire house that you might want to power in a disaster. How cool is that? You now got 
880 ampere hours of battery, 400 watts of solar panel. You got 240 volts in case you have to run your well pump or you want to run a MIG welder or something else. And you got 120 volts AC for all the necessary stuff in your house. So you might ask, how do I run this three kilowatt pump for only 15 minutes a day? Well, if you go to Amazon, you'll find an Intermatic, I-N-T-E-R-M-A-T-I-C, 240-volt electric hot water heater timer, and it costs 64 bucks. Yes, I'll put it up at the same location I mentioned. But the point is, you can set it to the minute. You can say, come on at 12.05 and turn off at 12.30. It will run it to the minute, and you can tell it to do this every day. And that's only 64 bucks, and it's double the power rating of the pump. I mean, how cool is that? So you got this whole battery system, and you're going to also need an enclosure to go around it or put it on a trailer. Plus, you need some mounts for the solar panels. But looking at the basic cost, you got $500 for the inverter, $720 for the panels, $100 for the charge controller, $180 for a 120-volt inverter. $150 in cables easily by the time you wire everything up, $960 in the batteries, and $64 in the timer. Wow, this comes at 2700 bucks. Now, it's, I mean, I didn't do this on purpose. It's coincidence that these numbers came out like this, guys, okay? It's $2,700 for a solar well pump system, and it's $2,700 for a solar system to power the existing well pump for 15 minutes a day. Now, the current well pump you have in there is hooked up and working on grid power right now. It's working. You throw the switch, it comes on. And these are uh, at California electric rates. So, 3,200 watts, 15 minutes a day, 20 cents per kilowatt hour California electric rates, and the rest of the country is 8 to 10 cents a kilowatt hour. That would cost you 16 cents a day to run it. For 15 minutes a day. You can use the same 7200 watt timer from Amazon for 64 bucks. And over a period of 10 years, which just happens to be the maximum life of that thousand dollars in batteries you just spent, this would cost you only $580 in grid powered electricity over the same period of 10 years. So, you got $2,700 for a DC solar pumping system for 350 gallons a day, $2,700 for a solar, for a Harris solar battery system that powers your existing 3200 watt, 240 volt pump for 15 minutes a day for 350 gallons a day. Of course, this is also one heck of a battery bank for emergency power for your necessary items in your house if you get hit by a big earthquake or a big storm. So you have to factor this into it. You're you're getting two as one. You're getting two things out of this. One, you can power your pump. Two, you can power a lot of stuff in your house. Or you can do nothing and just spend 16 cents a day on electricity from the grid to get the same amount of water into your cistern. And like I said, you can use the same $64 hot water heater timer from Amazon. So, as Desert Dog would say on the TSP Zello channel, what would you do? 
Rob, thanks for calling in with the question. I hope this answers your question and gives everyone something to think about. I mean, every one of you is going to have a different answer for what I just put out there. Some of you are going to want the solar well pump. Some of you are going to want the big backup system. Some of you are going to say, I'm going to spend 16 cents a day for electricity. For all you new people, I have complete TSP shows on how to power your house from your car with an inverter at solar1234.com. I have two one-and-a-half-hour TSP shows I did with Jack on nothing but selecting the right battery for you and how to make a home or mobile battery bank system. from Everything from one marine battery with DC only and no inverter all the way up to the entire system I just described. I tell you everything you need to know. It's free to listen to. It's at battery1234.com. This is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel. Please call in with more questions. I promise 100% I will get you taken care of. Um, yeah, like I have something to add to that. Holy crap. I mean, I expected him to get, come back with, like, here's your basic options, and you could do that. Part numbers, costs, analysis, time, time return. Steve, thank you. Thank you so much. And I love the way that Steve closed that. Not, hey, look, dummy, it's only 16 cents a day as it is, so just leave it alone, right? But what would you do? Now that you know all the... Gee, that sounds like how we should decide what to do about vaccinations, doesn't it? Now that you know all the facts... And you, you are, you can now use what we talked about yesterday with Matthew Miller of what's the risk of not acting versus the risk of acting times the chance of being wrong. What would you do? What would you do? I'll tell you what I probably would do. Assuming I had the budget, I would probably build the Harris backup power system and use that when necessary. Okay to back up the well pump into the cistern and use the grid on a day-to-day basis because that backup power system, as Steve says, does a lot more, okay, does a lot more than just power the well. That's what I would do. I'd like to hear from you in the comments section today. What would you do if you were in this situation knowing everything that you know now? Hey, Jack. Matt from New Jersey calling in. Just a couple gardening items I wanted to get your opinion on. Uh, this year when I was planting out my tomato starts, um, just kind of in a rush of trying to get things done and not having everything planned out, I ended up taking some um, some lettuce seed, which is like a spring mix packet of lettuce, and just sprinkling it on the ground kind of around my tomato starts. And I almost used it as a cover crop, and it really worked out nicely. The tomato plants came up real tall, and the uh, the spring mix kind of filled in all along the side and underneath the plants, and uh, provided a great weed suppression. And now I'm, I'm harvesting some great uh, spring mix. I was just wondering if you know of any I don't know downsides to that, or is that something that uh, was a good idea or not? It seems to be doing all right. I don't know if the plants. If the tomatoes are going to compete with the lettuces, they seem to be doing okay now, and pretty soon the, the lettuces are going to die out in the heat anyway. Um, secondly, I had some red dye hoppy amaranth, I think it was, I planted two years ago. And last year, a bunch of volunteers came up and really took off, and I, I saved the seed heads. And this year, I replanted a big patch of it, based on just like four seed heads. I got now like a uh, 20 foot by 20 foot area 
have all grown in the, the amaranth, but it's not as red as it originally was, and I'm wondering if it may have crossed with some uh, wild amaranth, and is there a downside to that? Uh, sorry for the long question, but hopefully you can tackle both. Thanks. Appreciate all your work. Take care. Let's start out with basically like using edible greens like a cover crop to create a functional relationship. So basically we were covering bare soil and creating a living mulch. And instead of doing that with a conventional cover crop that just is a soil improver but something we can actually eat, is there any downside? No. None. About the only downside that you could possibly have, which really isn't that big of a deal, is what you pointed out. Once the heat comes up on something like lettuce, it's going to die back. So now that ground is going to be uncovered. Well, we can do a couple things there. One, we can let the lettuce bolt, let it go to seed, and maybe we even harvest some seed from it. We let the last bit of that growth go kind of crazy where it gets big and tall and ugly, and we can cut it. Don't pull it out of the ground. Cut it right off at the root, chop it up and throw it on the ground, and it helps provide some mulch and take some of the dynamic accumulation that lettuce does and return some of those minerals and nutrients back to the soil and makes it available to our our tomatoes, and then you can go in there and mulch it with a traditional mulch or plant something that can handle the heat. That's the, so that's that's what you would do because of that, but it's not really a downside. But I'm you know I've got some beds that are just laced with arugula. I mean, just arugula thrown down like a cover crop, and it's doing fine, and it smells great. And this time of year with the heat, it's kind of sharp. If is the best way I can describe arugula this time of year, it gets a little bit too bitter. Uh, but you can cut it back and it'll come again. So we'll cut it back in the fall and that fall growth will be much sweeter, traditional nutty arugula. Our summers down here are just too hot for arugula to taste good, but not too hot for it to grow. We can also let a lot of it go to seed right now and get a shit ton of arugula seed to throw down in the fall. So there's a lot of ways you can do what you did and there's no real downside to it at all. If you're getting productivity out of land and you're also increasing fertility while you do it and providing other functional uh, components into the system, then you're doing it right. Permaculture, everything should have at least two to three functions. So the lettuce provides food, okay? It provides ground cover. It provides, provides dynamic accumulation. It can give us a seed yield if we would like to. And it provides both a living and a dead mulch. So it has multiple functions. It's had its functions stacked in your system. You did it perfectly, probably without even realizing it. The amaranth. Could it have crossed? Maybe. If you have quite a bit of amaranth, either wild or cultivated in your area, it's possible. And I mean, like, if you can see it, if you climb up, like, on a box so you can see over your fence or whatever and look around and you can see some amaranth, it could be what happened. Um, if you can't, if there's no native, you know, spiny amaranth or anything like that that might have crossed with it, if you didn't grow anything other than Hopi red dye, and if your neighbors aren't growing amaranth, it probably isn't what happened. So what's going on? Well, here's probably what happened. Nature planted the amaranth the second year, and you planted the amaranth your third year. Nature did it on nature's timetable, and you did it on yours. There's nothing wrong with you, what you did. There's nothing wrong with what your amaranth looks like. There's nothing wrong with the quality of your amaranth. There's no problem with it. You didn't do anything bad. You just got a natural consequence. Here's what I mean. Hopi red dye amaranth is a cool climate amaranth. Not a cold climate, a cool climate. A elevated climate plant, something that grows in high desert regions where it's generally pretty cool for a lot of the year, though it doesn't get frosty and freezy. It gets warm during the day and cool at night. And it became red, like many plants that are reds and purples, to cope with cloudy, cool conditions. 
Think about it this way. If you put out a piece of wood that's painted white and put a thermometer on it and put out another piece of wood that's painted black and put a thermometer on it, which one will get hotter faster? Well, if you put one out that's light green and one that's dark purple, you'll get the same result, though maybe not quite as much. Plants like red lettuces uh, and, and, and other things like that tend to do well in our winter seasons because they're adapted to it. That darker color actually concentrates solar radiant heat so that the plant actually can warm itself through passive solar uh, induction, basically. So by being a darker color, the plant warms up more. Now, you take a cool climate plant, like a Hopi Red Diamaranth, and put it into a position where you've planted it versus letting nature... Now, what do I mean by you've planted it? Well, in nature, that seed was just laying in the ground. So your volunteers came up wherever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, at the frequency of their choosing. So they germinated at the optimum time in your area. They may have also grown in areas with a little bit more shade than this big open space that you've put them into. So they had a need to retain that dark pigmentation so that they could do their thing. Now you planted them maybe a little later in the year. Maybe they germinated three or four weeks later than they did when they volunteered. You may not even have noticed when they first germinated when they were a volunteer. You didn't notice it until it was you know, half a foot tall. So you really don't know when. So a little bit later in the year, a little bit more heat, a little bit more exposure to the sun, and that plant's basically getting too hot now. So what's it do? Its intrinsic intelligence says you don't need to be so dark anymore, and it simply changes color. The plant changed color is most likely what you're dealing with there. I've seen it with many red or purple varieties of plants. See, when you see a purple plant, you think it's not green. Well, it is green. It's just the purple's overriding the green. Okay? Because it is, it has chlorophyll in it. It's doing photosynthesis. It just has this pigmentation that's covering up the green color. So as soon as that pigmentation is reduced chemically in the plant, you see the green come through. That's most likely what you're dealing with there. And I think it's actually kind of cool because it tells us something about the plant's adaptation. And I bet you, if you go plant a little bit in a pot somewhere of the same seed and put it back in kind of a shady, cooler area, it'll grow deep, dark red the way you're accustomed to. Give it a try and let me know. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name's Josh from Kentucky here in the... I just got a question about the uh, suspicious activity reports that you got to fill out and file with the commissar if you point, pull out too much money from the bank. Um, here recently, I transferred over an IRA, uh, a Roth IRA, that is. I took a distribution out of it because I just don't trust those things anymore. And it was uh, 15 large. And what I'm, you know, I went and pulled that money out of cash. I didn't realize I was going to have to do an SAR for pulling out. Uh, more than 10 grand, and of course that was filed. And essentially, my question is, what exactly happens with those? Um, I mean, you know, I know obviously we're telling the federal government how hey, you pulled out this much money, and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm not putting on the tinfoil hat. I don't think they're going to try and you know confiscate my money, but I'm just sort of wondering, is there anything I need to be cautious about there? And of course, just you know, to remind the audience, if you need to pull out money, uh, just don't do it in amounts over 10 grand at once like that. But Anyway, Jack, I love the show, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on uh, what I need to be concerned about, if anything. Thanks. Well, here's the reality. Everything you do anymore is basically subject to oversight by the federal government anyway. 
When you make large cash transactions, and this does not apply to writing a check and paying a bill generally, but if you go to the bank and say, I want $10,000, yeah, they basically tell the government that you did that. They do not tell the IRS, and it is not really a suspicious activity report. The two are being used synonymously today, and they're really not, um, not true. Okay, it's really not what it is. And even bank people sometimes call it a, a, specific, a suspicious activity report. And it basically shows the ignorance of some bankers and what they're doing. And maybe some banks are actually filing a, a, a SAR when they should just be doing a reporting. Large can, trash can, cash transactions are to be reported to the United States Department of Treasury. This basically says, hey, this person took 10 grand out of the bank. This person took 25 grand out of the bank. And that's... Nothing really happens other than they might look at it and go, does there seem like there's any reason that this happened that we need to know about? Are they getting ready to flee the country because we're getting, they think we're about to catch them for tax evasion or, or something like that? So it's very, it's really quite benign in, in, except for the fact that it's your money and it's none of their damn business. I mean, it's, it's, it's an outrage, but yet it's not anything to really concern yourself that much over. Okay. It's very, very simple. Now, because the government can come on any time and say, I want to see this guy's finances. All right, so that's just not really that big a deal. But people worry because anytime something goes to the government, well, maybe they'll look at it. If they look at it, maybe they'll say, well, there's somebody always has something to hide, so maybe we can find something if we look hard enough. But the truth is these guys have a job to do, and they like the layups, all right? A suspicious activity report is really different. A suspicious activity report really doesn't have anything to do with the total amount of money, but there's certain things that start heading a bank in that direction. It's anytime they believe that something's, something's not cool, something's going on that's, that's wrong. So let's talk about how you could turn a simple report of a large cash transaction into an SAR without wanting to, uh, by trying to avoid the reporting at all. So let's say that you wanted to take $20,000 out of the bank, and you said, I'm going to be smart. So I'm going to take $2,500 out of the bank until I get up to my $20,000 or $25,000, and I'm going to do it every four days. That's called structuring transactions, and that's being done specifically to avoid reporting. That actually would generate a true suspicious activity report. The bank is now obligated to say to the government, we think this client's doing something specifically irregular, something that's... so." SAR and direct and just cash transaction reporting are different. You could have a SAR because you're writing checks to the Cayman Islands on a frequent basis or something you've said to the teller a few times that they just don't think is right. They're obligated under uh, federal regulations to report those things as potentially suspicious. A cash transaction is just a cash transaction. I've tried really hard to find confirmation of this, but my understanding is that the $10,000 cash transaction has now been reduced to like three or four, that it's no longer just $10,000. And I've seen like anecdotal evidence of this in like crime scene investigation television, where I mean that they'll say, well, you know, this guy took out, you know, 5,500 bucks uh, four times, which is structuring, by the way, because he thought it wouldn't be reported, but it was because now it's less. So I don't know if it's true or not. I can't confirm that. If somebody actually knows and can point me to specific regulation where this occurred, I'd like I'd like to see it. 
But again, large cash withdrawal in itself is not a suspicious activity. It's just simply the, the government says all cash transactions over this amount, we won't report it to the Department of Treasury. Suspicious activity reports generally do go to the IRS, so they can even go to different places. Again, that doesn't mean your bank is in a bunch of dumbasses and they're not filing an SAR on a large cash transaction because they view it as suspicious just because it's large. But it's not required just because it's large. So hopefully that clears things up. Uh, if you do want to withdraw money over time and you do want to basically structure it without looking like you're structuring it, do it over a very, very long period of time. There's even issues with how many withdrawals or transfers in and out of a savings account you're supposed to do a year and it's supposed to be no, or a month and it's supposed to be no more than six or it gets to look fishy. Um, so there's, you know, which is kind of stupid, but you know, our government wants to know everything that we're doing. If they can gather information, they will. If it can be used against you, they'll do it. If the court says they're not supposed to, they'll just do it anyway. So there's only so much to worry about here unless you're actually laundering money or uh, buying you know, large quantities of marijuana to sell on the street at a profit or doing major tax evasion. It's really not the hugest concern, but it's something that we should still all see as just an intrusion into our privacy. And it's yet another reason to consider how much money do you really want to keep in the bank. If you just want cash, are you better off with cold, hard cash in a safe where it's not overseen. And when you do decide, you know what, I've had enough of this shit, I want to take a vacation, and I want to piss away a bunch of money. And you want to do it in cash, it's your own business. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying if that's what you wanted to do, whose business is it? Because you can you see this. Okay, so you decide you want to go off to the Bahamas, right? And you want to go down there, and you just want to, you know what, you want to blow off some steam. You want to gamble, You want to drink, you want to eat, and you don't want to do the credit card. You want to go down and you want to roll like daddy freaking Warbucks, right? So you go and you get 12 grand. I, again, I'm not saying to do this, but if you, it's your money. If you want to be stupid with it, it's just America. You're supposed to be free to do it. So you go down to your bank, you withdraw 12 grand, and you book a trip to the Bahamas on an airplane. You come back and you're broke. You gambled it, you pissed it away, you spent all the cash. Can you see that not kind of like, hey, what's going on here? And then you have this conversation with a bureaucrat going, what happened to all the money? I spent it. On what? Gambling, alcohol, partying. That sounds like a cover story to me, sir. Why did you do that in cash? I wanted to. I never did it before. I thought it was fun. You know, and can they make a case out of that? No, but you know, there's a lot of times that the government can't actually do anything to you with finality. They can't actually prosecute you. They sure as hell can make your life miserable trying to figure out if they're going to be able to, though. And in general, I do believe that it's it's possible that in many instances, something like that would, would trigger an examination, and then they might find an error you made unintentionally, and it could lead to pain, suffering, and misery down the road. So I would try to avoid it. But I also would try to make sure you don't just think you're going to cheat the system by taking out, you know, three grand a day for 10 days in a row because that will actually turn what was just a large cash transaction of $30,000 into a, a suspicious activity because you've now structured it and that is illegal. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My question is what role does the crossbow or traditional bow and arrow have in a prepping or S hit the fan scenario? Some of the benefits I see are that, you know, it's quiet. I guess you could potentially make a survival bow from materials around your area, and you could reuse ammunition or even craft your own arrows if you had to. 
and I'm assuming you could hunt some small game. And uh, my second question is just kind of silly: is how would this fare against people? Maybe you're making your way through a city and there's gangs or bandits who own the area, and uh, you don't want to make a lot of gunshot noise, so it seems like a crossbow would be perfect. Thanks, Jack. Um, let's start with the far-fetched one. You know, you're going to be making your way to a city or town with a crossbow in the post-apocalyptic world, and you're going to take out bandits along the way in stealth and silent mode. Uh, it worked for that, but anybody that was successful as a bandit in that environment is probably never going to be alone, and you've got one shot, and they're probably cranking off uh, a bunch more back at you. So when you watch movies where the guy is this operative, and he has this crossbow, and he's taking people out at you know 80 yards with his crossbow, and they're just and it's like sentries standing all by themselves, and they can't see each other, and they're falling over. Um, I'll tell you, there's a crossbow that will take a person out at 80 yards. I'm about to get one. I'm very excited. If you come to Des Moines, you're going to get to see one of the coolest crossbows in the world that I'll be endorsing. Um, I mean, just freaking phenomenally awesome crossbow. Uh, Scott Valencia from the festival has has uh, has hooked that up for me. So uh, it'll do it. But let me explain something to you. Let's say you said to me, Jack, I want you to come out and be the head of security for my property. Now, I've got a pretty big property, and I'm going to hire 10 goons, and I want you to be the head goon. I said, okay. And he said, you know, I want guard rotations. And I said, you know, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, four guards per shift on rotation, two floaters, and, 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 and float out a swing shift, and uh, I'll be overseeing everything. Those four goons are, generally speaking, on the type of thing you see, like where the guy's got a compound and everything, they're going to be where one goon can see the other goon. And they're going to constantly be in radio contact checking in with each other. And I'm going to probably honestly tell you, if it's a big compound, I want more guy, I want more goons. But I'm going to have goons where even if I, let's say I have goon A, and goon A can see goon B, right? Now, goon C might not be able to see A, but he can also see B, all right? And then maybe goon D can see B and C, but not A. But some each goon is going to be able to see each other goon so that not only do they have an area of surveillance, But I've now set them up where if any, any is compromised, at least one goon knows and can tell the other goons. Right? This is basic shit. This is not advanced tactics. Okay, This is very, very basic site security, guard security, entry-level military training to, to set things up. Interlocking fields of fire, etc., things like that. You're not actually covering yourself. This guy is. You're covering him. You're covering... This is... This is so anybody, if society ever breaks down this way, that makes it past the first couple months that's living as a predator, either knows this or has figured it out along the way. So if you think you're going to sneak in, I'm going to take out Goon A, and then I'm going to sneak over here and take out Goon, it's not going to happen. Okay? Is it an effective weapon on a human being? You bet your ass. You put a four blade broadhead through the lungs, heart region of anybody, and it's, it's, it's devastating. A bow with modern equipment is far more effective than people that have never shot a bow understand. I've put an arrow through the lungs of a deer, and when I gut that deer, the lungs come out as jelly. And I'm talking about a pass-through shot. Because as that blade, those blades spin through there, it's not just doing a straight, it's not a push-through. It's doing a slicing cut all the way through. And when you're looking at modern broadheads with a cutting radius of one and a half, two, two and a quarter inches... Make a two and a quarter inch hole and imagine that being bored through your chest. 
It doesn't have the kinetic shock value, right? The energy dump that the that, that a round from a rifle does, but it has amazing ability to cause hemorrhage injury and very quick incapacitation. So would I want to be shot with anything? No. Would I want to be shot with a broadhead arrow? Hell no. Right. So it would work, but you've got one shot, right? With a bow, you can get a lot more shots off. But still, I mean, Mythbusters did a thing with a, you know, a samurai trying to block an arrow, uh, with a sword and then, and get the guy before he could shoot a second shot off. And, um, they put like tennis balls on the arrows and they tried, and this guy pretty much every time was able to block the arrow and get to the guy before he could shoot a second time. Now, a modern, now if there was shooting a modern, you know, uh, cam based, uh, compound bow, putting arrows out at the speed they're capable of. I think that dude would have been dead on the first shot. But the follow up shot, nonetheless, is still the same type of a situation. So, I think it's a good deterrent if you've got a, you know, even if there's two guys and they know you can only get one of them, who's gonna go first, right? Um, I think it's a, a great food gathering tool and things like that. I think the silence is a, is a great advantage. But I think if you have any illusions of the way that these things are deployed tactically, you know, in like Rambo, that one Rambo movie where he went back to Vietnam or whatever, I, I think that that's all Hollywood and just no reality. It really isn't. Um, the advantages of a crossbow over a bow for the hunter are many. As a hunter, and I've been a lifelong archery hunter, and I love archery hunting. And, and part of why I want to move more to crossbows is not so much the advantage I'm about to give you, but but injury to my my shoulder in the military. And when I shoot a lot, uh, aggravating that injury and, and being concerned that that injury could become uh, a serious impediment to me long term if I continue to aggravate it. So uh, the, the shoulder's fine, but when I start shooting and I shoot, you know, a couple dozen shots. It, it can get tender, and if I if I do something just a little bit off with it, I mean, I can be down for a couple days with not really being able to use that arm, and I just don't think it's worth the risk. So that's why I want to move forward to the crossbow. Understanding the advantage there, though, let's look at a typical game animal with a bow. If I'm up in a tree stand, and I've got a white-tailed deer coming down a deer, uh, you know, a game trail, and he goes into a position where I'm ready to take a shot, he's, let's say, 20 yards out, head goes down behind a tree, the time I'm going to blow it is raising the bow and drawing the bow. That's what, If I'm going to get caught by the animal, that's when I'm going to get caught. And if he catches me, I'm done. A samurai may not be able to get out of the way of an arrow at 20 yards out of a modern cam bow, you know, a compound with dynamic cams and all the crap and the speed these things can go to, but a white-tailed deer can. And don't tell me you can't because I've seen it. I've seen deer jump over arrows, and I've seen deer hit the ground and watch an arrow go over their neck, uh, go over their backs. They're amazingly agile. They don't know what it is, but they know it's coming at them, and they know they want out of the way. It's, it's pretty amazing the speed that I've seen deer move at when they've busted somebody with the bow back. With a crossbow, in most of this new crossbow I'm getting, this isn't true, but in most instances, a crossbow actually has a, a shorter range than a compound bow. Because it's a, a shorter, they call it a bolt, not an arrow. And because the crossbows generally make a lot more noise. So even if you can angle and arch the, the shot right, the time of flight is longer. And the sound tips off the animal that you've now fired the shot. So they flinch. And even if you hit, you don't hit where you intended. Now you've crippled. Because with a bow, 
it's a big risk because you could cripple an animal, hit in the guts or things like that. Animals can go a long, long way, die days or months later from infections and, and, and other problems if you don't practice your craft uh, with excellence. So that's you know that's not really the advantage people it's like a it's like a rifle with an arrow coming out it's not it's 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 you know it's a 30 yard tool in most instances and uh this is what I'm getting if you've seen revolution which is where some of this theatrical bs comes from the crossbow that girl has I'm getting one of those and I thought it was all hype until I actually got my hands on one they're they're a pretty amazing tool and and they they they've got people taking game at 100 yards with these things so uh, I'm pretty excited about getting one anyway With a crossbow, when I've got that deer coming in with his head down, the only movement that I have to make is to bring that up into a, a rifle shooting position, okay? And I have no muscle fatigue other than holding it up. I don't have the bow drawn where eventually I start to get quivers and shakes. So even if that animal sort of busts me but he's not sure, and they, what deer do with you is they start looking at you and they start stomping their front freaking feet. And they start doing the head bob. That's where they put their head down like they're pretending they're eating and they're actually looking up out of their eyes. And then they bring their head up real fast and they start moving and, ju and juking around. What they're doing is they're going, I don't know if that's a danger or not, but I'm going to try to trick it into revealing itself to me. And the problem is it's freaking hysterical. Now you're up there with the bow drawn trying not to freaking laugh, right? And your muscles are fatiguing. Eventually, you, you hope the animal gives up and, and, and turns its head and you can take a shot Or you end up having to let the bow down and you you never get the shot because you don't want to take the shot when you're busted because a lot of times you will end up with a crippled animal. And it's, missing's not bad, crippling is. With a crossbow, I don't have that problem. In fact, it's, it's pretty easy for me to take any opportunity to bring the bow up. So the animal's behind a big, thick clump. I know he can't see me. He's coming in this direction. If I draw a bow, I could be there for a minute with the, with the bow back before that animal comes clear for a shot. It's really, really hard. Having a crossbow up, it's not. So it has a tremendous advantage from a movement and ability to hold your aim standpoint. And I think these are things that you won't really understand unless you, you get out and do some archery hunting with both implements to, to truly understand the difference. It's drawing, and this is part of why I will always still shoot some with a traditional bow, drawing a bow on an animal 10, 12 yards away that knows something's up but doesn't know what is the closest to being a true predator you will ever become. I think it's more so than, you know, hunting uh, hogs with uh, with dogs and a knife. I know that seems a lot more personal, but the dog does a lot of the work there for you. Um, and when you, you know, you're running down, you're holding an animal at bay, this deer, a fraction of a second of screw-up is all you need, and it's gone. And it's it's pretty amazing. What role it plays for the survivalist? Food gathering primarily, defensive, way, way secondary. I mean, that's that's the truth. And that's kind of an overview of bows and, and crossbows and, and where they all fit. And if you want to see a cool crossbow, guys, come see me in Des Moines. Uh, I've been promised I'm getting one. <laughs> Let's take a uh, another call. Hi, Jack. I would like to hear your thoughts on using our daily fuel consumption in a way that creates more value from such a disposable commodity. I'm trying to save money on gas as well as convert the gas money into additional value, such as equity or redundancy. I spend about $250 to $300 a month on fuel for my 50-mile-a-day commute from my off-grid cabin to work. And I've ridden motorcycles in my day, and I'm comfortable with them, and I'm saving up for one. 
because if I can get 60 miles per gallon, my gas use drops by three-fourths, and that frees up almost $200 a month, which would be about the monthly payment for the bike. So is a three-year, 5% motorcycle loan a good use of this money that I will be spending no matter what? Because then that $250, $300 then turns into a physical motorcycle instead of just fumes. Now, I can obviously buy used in cash, but fuel injection and a warranty for commuting sounds nice. So the other idea includes saving up and building the battery back up in my truck and charge the batteries while I drive each day and use that power for lighting in my office cabin. Again, turning gas money that will be spent into additional value. So am I just convincing myself to buy a motorcycle and build a cool toy, or are my economics sound? Yes. I've lived off-grid for over a year without electricity at all and have surprisingly used less than about 100 gallons of propane for on-demand hot water, cooking, light, and summer refrigeration. I use about one quart of wood for heat in the winter. So the amount of energy that I would be gaining from a few Optimas would be a huge addition. And I just want to say that with the properly designed off-grid systems, the most important elements of human needs can be met in comfort and ease. And I really encourage everyone to go out and try. I know my life has improved because of it and because of the show. Thanks, Jack. It means a lot. Take care. Neither one of these ideas are bad and or wrong. They don't necessarily financially work out exactly the way that you say they do, but they might. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um... <clears throat> The vehicle you're using now, is it paid for in full? Because before the gas money really pays for the motorcycle, it first has to pay or pay, pay for the payment. It has to first pay for the underlying equity. And what I mean by that is let's say that, that you're going to buy a $5,000 motorcycle. And let's say that you have a truck right now that's fully paid for. Until you get $5,000 in savings, you're behind you're behind the power curve. So if we were to do something, and I don't know what motorcycles cost, and I, I'm, you know, I don't know what kind of motorcycle where you're talking about a, you know, a, a basic street bike or a, a $12,000 Harley. Uh, but if we said it was a $5,000 motorcycle, and we divide that by 200, we get 25 months and a 25 month payback. And at month 26, you're actually doing what you said you were doing. And until then, you're not. You haven't yet recouped the new outlay, even if it's financed. You still have to look at it as an amateurization problem that way. It doesn't mean it's not sound economics. It doesn't mean it doesn't work out. If you want a motorcycle and now you have a motorcycle and a truck, so you have two is one, one is none, and if it's pouring rain or something like that, not safe to take the bike on those days, you have the truck as a redundancy, it's not a bad decision. I mean, buying stuff isn't inherently evil. And even financing certain things isn't inherently evil if you get the right financing, the right terms, and you can easily service the debt even if you lose your job. Okay, so so that works out. The the truck and battery idea, I like better, and I'll tell you why. It pays an immediate dividend in quality of life. Um, you could probably build a pretty good backup system for about a thousand bucks. 
it was a truck style, Steve Harris, a la Steve Harris. I think the one he put together run you about $1,500 by the time you're done with it, if you don't include the solar panel with it, uh, which you wouldn't really need um, in your situation because um, you're driving every day. So you're going to keep those batteries more than sufficiently topped off. You're not going to use any more gas for that. It's just a, it, it's basically a wasted energy recatch, which is what you're talking about doing here for real. You're talking about, see, here's what people don't get. Like when your car goes down the road, There's a certain amount of energy needed to put that vehicle in motion and a certain amount of energy needed to maintain that motion. And then a certain amount of energy needed to break that motion to stop and slow down. And the, the energy produced by the vehicle is in excess of all those things. There's a surplus of energy that's lost. It's dissipated as heat. It's, it's lost when the vehicle's basically at a, 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 a coast. But yet the motor's idling. It's lost when you're sitting at a, a stoplight and it's idling and you're on the brake and it's basically the vehicle trying to push and you're holding it back. There's all these energy sinks in a vehicle and a battery backup system attached to that vehicle is one way of recapturing some of that energy lost in the sink. You'll never capture it all. If you could, you'd have perpetual motion. You'd have an electric car that charges itself. Okay, So we can't catch it all, but we can catch some of it. The fact that that, now when you got home, you would be able to have an enhanced quality of life, I like as well. But either one or both would work. What I probably would not advise, if the truck is paid for, or even you owe money on it, but you're right side up on your loan, trading it in on the bike and only having one vehicle and having that be a motorcycle, I don't think that's good at all. Uh, if you are comfortable riding a motorcycle for 50 miles each way a day, that's fine. I wouldn't be. I see a lot of risks there, but there's risks and things that I do. I do some stuff that's probably a hell of a lot riskier than riding a motorcycle, and then I turn around and say I wouldn't want to ride a motorcycle. So that's all personal. Um, but if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. Having no other option and having to go to work on a day where conditions for riding a bike are marginal and having to take that accelerated risk because now you're down to a one-vehicle household, I, I do not like that at all. I definitely don't like that. Um, in, in no way, shape, or form. So that's, that's my thoughts there. Again, you have to run the numbers for yourself, but that's something you can't deceive yourself with until you actually save as much as you're spending. You haven't actually, actually broken even yet. So what's that time to return and what's the life expectancy of the vehicle? And what does this financial move do you, to you in the totality of your financial life? And it sounds like nothing. It sounds like nothing. It sounds, it sounds to me like you have a paid for truck. Period. Or one that you don't owe much money on. And it sounds to me like you got this number thing figured out. Like the gas savings will, and it's exactly what I did when I bought the Jetta. I had a paid for Jeep Cherokee. That vehicle had 211,000 miles on it. And I bet you someone's still driving it today. That thing ran and ran and ran and it never had any problems. It had one short in the wiring harness that needed to be fixed. And I let the people that I traded it in with worry about that. It wasn't my problem by the time of that. But when I looked at taking a payment on the Jetta versus driving the paid-for Jeep, I came up with a number of 31 months. In 31 months, I would save enough money in gas to fully and wholly pay for the new vehicle. And I went from an old vehicle with over 200,000 miles to a new warrantied vehicle that was better suited for my daily commute and, frankly, safer for my daily commute. And that made the decision economically simple. So it's not these economic numbers don't work out. It's just, yes, we can use them as an excuse to do something maybe we shouldn't. 
as long as there's no financial hardship endured here, and as long as you're not going to put yourself at undue risk, again, having a bike and not a closed-door vehicle, uh, when conditions are marginal and still having to use it, I don't see a problem with it. But I do like the for your situation, if you're choosing between the two, I would probably do the battery backup system first. But it's a personal choice, and I wouldn't fault either one. Great call. Makes you think. Uh, for the audience, what would you do? Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Bob from Eastern PA calling about um, teaching a new person how to shoot. Um, I'm a longtime shooter. My wife is not. Um, she has agreed to go to the range with me and, you know, check it out. I'm just wondering, do you have any tips or guidelines or, uh, you know, rules about how I should or should not handle this? I prefer if a woman could teach her, but I don't have a woman shooter here to actually do the job. So I need to do it myself. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. I would strongly consider getting an airsoft weapon of a similar size, form, and function of the weapons that you consider putting in her hands as first weapons and sitting in a backyard and shooting aluminum cans or coffee cans or something like that with it and telling her, honey, we're going to treat this non-lethal weapon as though it's completely lethal. This is a dry run rehearsal. I have actually found it easier to work with kids than adults with live firearms in first-time shooting situations. Kids just listen. Women, especially with their husbands, don't like to listen, and therefore they tend to not listen at a time when it's critical that they listen. Okay, Ladies, it's like dancing. Okay, When you're with an experienced shooter and you're not, you shut up and do whatever they say. Men, when you're on a dance floor with your women, you're leading. Women, you shut up and you go wherever he tells you with his hands and motions and body. The man leads. It's not the real world, it's the dance floor. In the real world, there's a You know, a lot of times women are in control, but in dancing, you lead. In shooting, the experienced shooter leads, and the inexperienced shooter shuts the blank up and follows. Okay? Doing this with something non-lethal at first will take the experienced shooter's fear level and apprehension level down, so they'll do a better job of shooting. And it'll do the same thing for the new shooter because they know it's not real, but yet they can be held accountable as though it was. You've just muzzled me, honey. You've just muzzled me. What's that mean? It means that you turned with the weapon and the muzzle went across my body. Therefore, if that was a live weapon and it had gone off, I would be dead now. But you don't go, you freaking muzzled me! Because you're not really, you mean like that would have stung, right? Wear safety goggles if you're worried about getting hit in the eyes while this is going on. But it starts basic... Discipline, muzzle control, safety protocols, not putting your finger on the trigger, side alignment, form, all of these things with no fear. So, I mean, I think it's a great entry-level tool. Then on range day, when you go to the range, have a new shooter start with 22s. Not even 380s. I know, well, there's no real kick. There's muzzle flash. There is some recoil. 22, they'll pull it, they'll close their eyes like, ah. That wasn't bad. And all of a sudden, they're just like, right? And they're not afraid of it anymore. Now we can begin to work up. So starting with a 22. If you don't have one, rent one, right? 
you taking your wife to the range and getting basic familiarity with a weapon, how to use it, how to basically shoot, all that stuff is fine. You say you don't have a woman shooter available to teach her. I'll tell you I don't care if the shooter's a woman or not, but probably the smart thing to do is that range probably employs or has people that they advertise for that are professional instructors. And once you get her some basic familiarity and safety rules down and a little bit of comfort with a weapon, turn her next level of training over to a professional, purchase her a day of training at the range, and guys, here's how you get it done for the woman that's a little bit apprehensive. Set them up with a half day of training, one-on-one. Pay the extra money and get ready for your wallet to hurt because I'm going to make it hurt more. Okay, But I guarantee you guys this will get your woman to the range. So you're going to set her up in an early part of the day, about four hours of training with a professional, going over safety, side alignment, weapons usage, holstering, unholstering if it's a handgun, how, you know, everything they need to know, and maybe even say, well, I'd like the training to consist of two hours of handgun training and two hours of rifle training. Okay? And you let the, the instructor decide what guns that are going to be appropriate. Give them an honest appraisal of your, your wife's note. This doesn't sound like a magic formula to get the wife to the range with training yet, does it? Well, yes, it does, because here's what's going to happen. You are going to pick your wife up at the range at lunchtime. You're going to take her to a wonderful lunch, and you are going to have a great lunch date with your wife. After you have this incredibly wonderful lunch date with your wife, you're not going to go home. Well, you are eventually, but she's not. You're going to drop her off at a spa for a spa treatment. She's going to get her nails done. She's going to get a massage. She's going to get a facial. She's going to get whatever she wants. So it's going to be a day at the range followed by a day at the spa. If you're smart, you'll talk to one of her, uh, her girlfriend's husbands and say, let's do this for them together. Because then they're going to go off as two girlfriends to do this, and they're going to have a blast. And you gentlemen will pick them up, and you will not have lunch as a foursome. You will take each wife independent of each other for lunch, and then you will bring them back together. This will give them lots of shit to talk about at the spa, which will make their day really enjoyable. And it won't be long before they're asking, can they do it again? This is Dr. Phil, I mean Jack Spirico, telling you how to have a great range day experience with professional training for your spouse. Someone out there that runs training school should be listening to this Frank Sharp and should formalize a program like this. You'd probably have them lining up around the corner if you did. A day at the range followed by a day at the spa. What a great idea. Uh, I'm not going to run a range, so you guys are free to run with it, man. Frank, hope you're listening today. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, uh, we watched uh, all your videos from the Contour Bed workshop you had, and, man, thanks for putting out su- such awesome info. I hope one day we'll actually be able to come attend one ourselves. Um, I'm curious, uh, how do you actually plan to water your beds during the really hot Texas summers? I'm sure if you get during a drought period, uh, you know, uh, you may need to do some supplemental irrigation. Are you planning to do something special out of the ordinary drip irrigation just real curious to see uh in a follow-up question we actually had a woody bed that uh the soil dried out and uh i'm sure that probably happened with the i don't know possibly the wood underneath too i mean it felt real real dry all the way down is there any uh way to reinvigorate that you just dump a whole bunch of water in or is there something else you would suggest uh hopefully it won't happen again so thank you very much appreciate the awesome workshop and the uh the awesome show man i hope you have a great day Yeah, the issue with the bed drying out, just irrigate it. I mean, just water it. I wouldn't dump it, because if you dump it, you're going to like cross erosion, but a good, thorough, deep, deep watering of a bed that's fully dried out will fix your problem. Rain will fix your problem, for instance. Um, let's start out with this whole thing about hugaculture, and you don't need to irrigate. 
a la Paul Wheaton. If you're building a one-and-a-half, two-meter-high giant culture bed uh, in Montana with moderate temperatures and climate and you plant the right stuff, you cannot irrigate. Uh, in many other situations, you'll find yourself not having to irrigate. If you build... Uh, contour based hugel beds, small frame stuff, couple foot tall, uh, in, uh, harsh climates like Texas, uh, you are going to irrigate and you are going to irrigate or things are going to die, especially in the first year or two of the system when you're dropping live wood into the ground and a good hardwood like oak like I did. So yeah, we irrigate. In fact, um, I'm irrigating right now in the heat of this crap. We're at going to be 105 today in the e the morning and the evening, okay? How am I irrigating? In a way, I really don't want to right now, but it's the only way I can right now for ease uh, and simplicity. And because of the design, it's not as inefficient as it sounds because 100% of the water is being harvested because of the contour-based system. And that means, how am I doing it? I have some garden hoses out there and some valves and three of those plain-jane side-to-side sprinklers, back and forth, back and forth, the ones that just like a big wave. I have them spread out, and I can just turn a valve, and when I turn the valve, one comes on, and when it's done its deal for a little while, I turn it, the other one comes on, and I do that about 20 minutes twice a day each zone in the garden with culture because, well, right now I have to because it's 105 degrees and the system is brand new. The beds that I put in manually, uh, two months earlier than the ones, maybe three months earlier for some of them than we did the workshop with, that have fully matured, They're getting watered, but they don't need that much water. When I go out in the evening to water, you can see the plants in the newer beds. They're sad. They're wilty. They're like, oh, crap. And when you feel into the depth of the bed, you can tell it's dried out a lot, especially the southwest corners of the beds because that's where the sun is dropping and if that long exposure western sun really dries out those ends. So I always start with that far end zone, the first one to get watered because it's the one that's suffering the most. Next year I'll have to water a lot less and the following year I will probably only have to water in July and August. Okay, And I will still water. I will not stick to these side-to-side sprinklers. My favorite method of irrigation is drip. There is nothing, 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 one more time, nothing better than drip irrigation, especially for a garden. Nothing. Why am I not doing it? It's simple. It's easy. Put it in. Because I tested it. Because I had very big concerns over my water. And I put out dripper line. I usually use... Dripper line, you can buy on Amazon, you can buy it at Home Depot, you can buy it at Lowe's. You don't cut it and put emitters in it. It has built-in emitters. It's the For, for a large-scale drip irrigation, it's the way to go. Um, because the emitters, you start buying the emitters one at a time and piecing that stuff together, it gets expensive, and it gets expensive fast. You get that long six-inch in-between-each-emitter drip line, and you just lay it out, put a plug in the end of it, and you have a little tool, and you punch that into your delivery line, and you stick a, a coupler in there, and you couple it to the delivery line, and it drips, and life is good. And for me, life was good for two and a half, three days before the hard water clogged up the drippers. So I thought, well, maybe what I need is a filter. So I put a filter in one, and I tested it again, and it's still clogged up very, very fast because it's not stuff in the water. It's the water itself with high calcium and, and, and uh, high sulfur content. It's just very, very hard water. In fact, I have to use um, calcium lime remover on my sprinklers frequently or sprinklers clog. 
and eventually, and it wears a, the gears in a sprinkler out eventually as well. So it's not great irrigating water. Okay, so when I go to irrigation, I'm gonna have to get more into some of the kind of stuff that Steve was talking about using rain catchment to get off this hard water, which will be better for everything anyway. But that's down the road. So what is my interim plan? And this will probably be a project for the intern. By the way, we've got a lot of applications. If you sent your in, you're under review. Right now, Dorothy's going through them. When I get back from Iowa, we're going to get in-depth, and we'll contact a few finalists for phone interviews. Just throw that out there. But what we're thinking, what I'm thinking about doing, the first thing I thought is, why don't I just take across the top of each bed two half-inch pieces of PVC pipe, plumb them together so that there's one hose fitting on one end, and stop them on the other end. Drill a bunch of little holes in them, and maybe put half as many holes facing the inside and double as many holes facing the outside, put them right on the shoulder contour of the bed. The ones that blow in, you do half the number because there's twice as many because two pipes are both blowing in, and you do double the number on the outside, and that would soak the whole bed, and it would be like basically uh, a slow drip irrigation. And I could just play with the sizes of the holes until I figured out over a 10-foot, 20-foot, 40-foot run, holes should be this big, pressure should be here, and they're a much bigger hole. And if they do clog... You take a nail and stick it in there, and they unclog. Here's my problem with that. It's not fle very flexible, and it, it will become very brittle in the sun. PVC pipe, not buried, becomes very brittle. So here's what I'm thinking about doing now. I'm thinking about using drip irrigation delivery line, the quarter-inch big black line that you put the fittings on, that you plumb in your drippers and your emitters and your delivery lines too, or your, your secondary lines too, the bigger piece of line. And just using the tool that you use to punch holes in it to stick the emitters and the couplers into and basically doing the same thing with that line and just letting the water weep out, basically. It'll come out much faster than a drip, but again, if there's a problem, we can just unclog it. And if I play with that on distances and variables, I should be able to come up with a formula of a hole every foot on both sides of the line offset six and six, right? So six inches one side, six inches the other back, so it's a foot apart each one. And then figure out how that's going to work, and maybe put two lines to a bed in the same configuration I talked about, play around with pressures, and come up with maybe one, two, or three zones to do this with and get much more efficient. That's about the only way I can figure this out. My other thought is one of the things I could do is you take the, the irrigation line, the secondary, the smaller line with couplers that generally they put emitters into, and they could get a little more precise with where that water comes out, and I could do some things with basically taking a piece of wire. This would make the hole a little bit restricted. So I could take a little twist of wire and restrict the hole of the little piece of emitter line Okay, down to where it flows at the rate that I want it to on full pressure. So I can regulate the pressure that way and regulate the delivery that way. And again, the beauty of that is if it does clog, I can take the wire off, stick a, uh, a nail in it, and unclog it. How often it would clog, I don't know. But with these larger openings, it should work. But drip irrigation with true drip emitters with this water I have just doesn't work. And I figured I'd explain that because there's probably people out there that have tried it and constantly had their drippers clog up. If you know a way around this, where it's not dirt, it's not rock, because again, a filter was the first suggestion somebody gave me. Filter did not fix this problem. If you know a way to do drip irrigation with true drip, with hard water, if there's something I can push through the lines once in a while to clean them out, that won't be damaging to my crops or something like that, let me know. Otherwise, 
some type of a situation like I've described, holes, clamps, something, is where I want to go to long term. Again, though, if I can get enough rain catchment in, I can run drip with pressure off of elevation from rainwater. That would be better anyway. But I don't think that's going to happen short term. I think short term we're going to use the well and we're going to try to modify something to create more of like a precision irrigation delivery versus true drip. Anyway, for now, it's just three sprinklers because that works. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Matthew from Tucson, the warrior hunter on the forums. Had a quick comment for you, uh, just about a couple things that happened recently in regards to your show. First one is uh, in regards to Steve Harris's show on power. Um, taught me a lot. I rolled up to church this weekend. We meet at a school, and we had no power. So uh, I went home, grabbed my inverter, pulled my truck right up to the door, hooked it up. We had fans running, so instead of suffering in 100-degree heat, We were able to have three different fans going on and uh, keeping everyone cool made it a lot more enjoyable, but it also gave me a chance to share uh, prepping in a very simple way and practical way to a lot of people that probably wouldn't have considered it. So that was really cool, and I just wanted to share that with you and your audience. Uh, the other thing is uh, we've also, my wife and I sold our, our vehicle that we owed on this past week, saved us $16,000 plus interest over four years. So. Our debt's been cut by half. I cannot tell you how freeing and liberating it feels, uh, how light I feel not having that weight over my head. And I wanted to share that, too, in case there's anyone uh, thinking that paying off debt is not that important, that you are absolutely right. Debt is slavery. It is bondage. And we got to kick it in the ass. So thanks again for everything you do. Just wanted to share those two comments. Love the show. And please keep doing what you're doing. Have a good day. Well, I, I don't have a ton on that um, because, well, it's not mostly a question. It's mostly two comments that just are great things to share from one member of the community to the rest of the community. I do think that the energy stuff that Steve has taught us about with inverters and backup power systems, etc., are one of the greatest evangelical tools for prepping that could exist. When you have someone with power out and you walk in and go, here's power, they're like, that's cool. There's no, oh, that's crazy or whatever. You don't even have to talk about it. You just have to wait. There is no human being that's ever gone probably five years in America today that hasn't had a power outage. Sooner or later, the most reluctant person will be in a situation where there's no power and you can help them and that will get through to them with some exceptions. There are people that are blockheaded. I had a listener came to the house and he told me that his wife is so resistant to this whole concept Even though he has a beautiful garden that grows beautiful food, she will not eat food out of his garden. I, I don't even know what to say there. But most people, when you make the lights come back on or put on a fan so they're not sweating and miserable, you get their attention in a positive way. So that's great, and I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, the next thing about debt freedom. This is what I say all the time when I do you know, presentations and talks, and people say, but what is this? What about that? What about, what about the tax deduction? Whatever. I haven't ever had one person ever in the history of this show Email me, call me, or comment on my blog and say, Jack, because of you, I'm debt-free. And I'm so pissed off at you. You are such a jerk. It screwed everything up in my life. The only thing I hear from people that become free of debt is, thank you so much. My life is my own again. So that's a very important thing that we understand. I do want to also point out that um, while I was uh, you know, kind of answering questions and all today, I did keep checking my email box about the advice I gave about generators because uh, I sent Steve Harris a quick email and said, basically, did I get this right? Is there anything you would add? He said, you got 100% perfect. 
So the concept that it's just a fail-safe in case it dumps energy into the frame, it's probably not needed, but it might not be a bad idea. Steve says that checks out 100%. Uh, so I got that one right. Let's, uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Dave in Tampa. Uh, this last listener call-in show, you answered some questions about uh, uh, raccoons and wild game and all. Uh, down here in Tampa, we've got a problem with raccoons with rabies. Uh, can you address that? Is there a special prep, uh, extra cooking time or avoid them? Or, uh, we've got raccoons with rabies down here. No, for sure. Cause my dogs got involved with one, uh, and the animal control demanded them, uh, the dogs to be put down. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show and appreciate all you do. Bye. Well, first of all, assuming that your dog had, um, been vaccinated for rabies, I would have punched the animal control officer in the face and beat his ass and dared him to try to put my dogs down. If your dogs weren't vaccinated and the animal was indeed rabid, then sadly that is actually what needs to be done, and that's very sad, and I'm very sorry for you. But if your dogs are vaccinated, there was no reason for that to happen. If nothing else, they could have put into quarantine observation for a while, and the man should have his freaking ass kicked. Can you tell I'm a little pissed off? I'll let it go. I'll let it go. Okay, let's just answer the question. I really want to come right to your house right now if, if your dogs were vaccinated and beat this man's ass. I really do. I'm not going to. I really want to breathe, count to ten, relax. I'm seriously this angry. But I could be wrong. Again, if your dogs weren't vaccinated, then he made the right call. Reason to have your animals vaccinated, folks, for rabies. It's a serious, serious thing. Okay, so... You know, with trapping and all. First of all, I would I would guess that in Florida, um, the raccoon is probably considered a fair a furber and a game animal. It probably is subject to seasons, limits, and ways that they can be taken. So you're probably not shooting raccoons with a pellet gun in the head, getting it to your garbage can for dinner tonight. There's probably a way and season and reason for for doing this. So um, the reality is that you, your area is really not anything special. There is the fact that all animals that are, are mammals can contract rabies, and a possum, a raccoon, a squirrel, any animal can have rabies, a rabbit, including many animals that we consume as hunters and trappers all the time. And you don't hear a whole lot about hunters getting rabies uh, because, generally speaking, it ain't going to happen. Let me say, if an animal in a trap is behaving very strangely, and generally animals with rabies seem to be doing so, and gee, that's the other thing. To just, I can't. I'm not going to go there right now, you know. But was the the raccoon that your dogs got into it with rabid? Is you know before, or this guy just a jackass that needed to ask? I mean, seriously, I want to kick this guy's ass so hard that the top of his head hurts. I, I seriously do. I have a big problem with this, and I'm trying to let it go because it's. It's not my direct issue, and I'm, I'm sure that you um, knew the situation you were dealing with or, or what have you. Man, that pisses me off. Um, so when we take an animal, we need to look at it. If it looks diseased or in any way wrong, it, it just needs to be discarded and buried. Okay, But we need to understand how rabies is transmitted, and it's transmitted through the saliva and the nervous tissue, so the spinal cord, the brain, and things like that. Generally, I don't eat brain and spinal cord. Generally, those are discarded, especially from something like a raccoon. I see very little advantage into cracking into the, the brain case of a raccoon. Um, so that's not going to happen. If you take meat and you cook it, 
okay? Any possibility of a fully cooked meat transmitting rabies is just moot. It ain't going to happen. It's not that likely anyway, all right? The danger is you're dealing with an animal that you've dispatched, and you're getting blood and possibly saliva on your hands, and if you get that into your eyes, mucous membranes, there can be transmission. But where it's really likely, if there's any nicks or cuts exposing your blood, it might, you might, and you get the saliva from a rabid dead animal into that cut, you might as well have been bit or scratched by it. So there's a risk of transmission that way. So good meat handling practices like wearing gloves, Uh, when doing your butchering and things like that are probably not a bad idea. But the risk is probably overblown. It really is that you're going to have a lot of animals uh, having rabies at an epidemic level for a long time because rabies tends to uh, quell its epidemics on its own through lethality fairly quickly. And the problem is that public hysteria today is if we find two raccoons with rabies, it's it's everyone has it. They're every, if everyone had it, they'd all be dead in a few weeks. There wouldn't be any left, right? So it's probably not as bad. It, uh, kind of a public service announcement, though. One vaccine that you should never let a family member be without is a rabies vaccine for your dogs and your cats. It's... I talked earlier about vaccines with my rant. I said, when we look at a vaccine, we have to look at what's the risk. Um, and the risk for an animal without a vaccine can be death, even if the animal doesn't contract rabies, if it's just suspected that the animal has rabies. Um, again, though, if you have an animal that's been vaccinated according to a vaccination schedule, that's been in some kind of conflict with another animal that's su suggested is to have rabies, You would have to kill me to kill my dog in that situation. I would not let it happen. I would not let it happen. And I, I really want to go to Florida right now. If, if it's just that a raccoon that acted strangely got in a fight with animals that were vaccinated, man, um, insisted. Talk about government having too much power. Again, if, if this animal was, was rabid or at least appeared rabid and these animals, these dogs were not vaccinated, maybe. I still say they could have been quarantined. They could have been quarantined. It sounds to me like a great injustice was done and somebody needs their ass beat. I'm sorry. I'm so mad about this. I'm going to take another call before I snap a freaking gasket. Question for Jack or related experts. I've tried three times to plant Jerusalem artichokes, and I've had absolutely no perennial effect whatsoever in the second year. My object was to duplicate a Native American colonial food that allegedly was naturally occurring as well as cultivated in the Middle Atlantic states. I got my roots from a food store once and, a and two, twice from two different nurseries. They come up the first year, the second year, while every source I've found online says that they're aggressively um, self-reproducing. There's nothing the second year. Is there some fact that I am missing? Good old Jerusalem artichokes. Well, my first question would be, did you harvest them? you pull all the tubers out of the ground and use them for something, or did you just leave them in there? 
if you harvested them, it's possible that you got all the tubers out of the ground and there was not enough left to replace. If you didn't harvest them and this happens, then I'm going to tell you that your best option is to harvest them and set some aside for replanting. I'm going to take a wild, uh, what they call a swag, a statistical wild-ass guess. Right? That's a technical term in, in business, a swag. A stati- it's not free shit from your, uh, your, your uh, you know, like when you get, it's not like a free shirt from TSP if you come see me at an event. That's not real, what real swag is. Swag is statistical wild-ass guess. So my swag at this is that the area that you're growing them in, is extremely wet to the point of becoming almost anaerobic in the winter period, and the tubers are rotting in the ground. That is the most likely reason that something with a reputation for being so perennial is not coming back. So there's some things we can try. One thing we could do is we can go to more of a raised bed configuration to get better drainage, and we're probably not going to have as much of a problem. We could try planting them in a different location. I'd say try a different variety, but it sounds like you've tried several varieties. But your, your, your surefire method is, you know, harvest them through the years. Um, you know, once they go to, to set tubers, start harvesting and reserve some tubers to plant next year. Um, it doesn't take a long time to do. If you're not harvesting at all, and you're just waiting for them to come back and, and be established, um, it might be that a little bit of harvesting would help. Maybe there's too many, and they're getting more into this kind of a rot mode. Um, again, though, I would look at moisture. I think it's the most likely culprit that you're in too damp of an area. Um, with certain temperatures or certain ways, I mean, I don't care how aggressively perennial something is, if you end up with conditions that are going to cause rot, anything will rot. So that, that's my best guess there. With that, uh, I think we've wrapped up another, uh, another episode. Those of you that, uh, I'm gonna see in Des Moines today or tomorrow, I really, uh, am happy about meeting you. Please come on out. Remember, as I say always when I'm at these events, do not Come up to me, shake my hand, say, I just wanted to meet you. I don't want to waste your time and run away. Talk to me. Hang out with me. You're not a bother. You're not wasting my... I'm there to meet you. Ladies, if you're there with your husband and he's trying to talk to me, don't drag him back. It's okay that he talks to me. I said so. Men, same thing with your women. I just see it the other way more often. But I'm there to meet you guys. I'm there to hang out with you guys. Again, we are going to uh, to have uh, a meetup tonight. Uh, and the location is a place called Jimmy's Big Ten Restaurant Bar. It's only about four blocks away from the event, and will be something going on Saturday night. Tune into the blog or come by and talk to me on Saturday to find out about that. Hope to see a lot of you guys there. Hope everybody enjoyed today's show. Sorry if I get a little tweaked off about the thing, but dogs are dogs are important to me, man. Dogs are part of my, my dogs, are part of my family, and uh, public service announcement. You question vaccines, but you question them based on the risk and the reward ratio. And losing an animal that you didn't have to lose to something like that isn't worth it. Protect the creatures under your care. They didn't ask to be there. They didn't ask to be put in that situation. And if dogs get into it with a raccoon on your property, they're probably defending your property. And if they're loyal enough to defend your property, you need to be loyal enough to protect them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget 
like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.